0: Uh, very related to what we just did in this game, I have a pop quiz for you guys. And that's, that pop quiz um, is Does anyone know what the four humors are? Blood. Yeah, what, so that, that'll be the follow up question, but what are they? I think the four things that make up your body. Yeah, the four things that make up your body, right? Um, and so uh, uh, Hippocrates is the one who came up with this, this early uh, B.C. Uh, guy who's kind of the father of modern medicine. He came up with these four humors, and it's the four things that he hypothesized made up the human body. And they were, you said what? Blood. Blood. Bile. What, there's two kinds of bile. Black bile. Black yellow bile. And yellow. yellow bile. And then,
1: uh, this, is all nice. this is my
0: favorite one. Yeah. Phlegm. <laughs> uh, and so so he came up with these, and he hypothesized, and this shaped medicine. This shaped how we view ourselves. It shaped how we studied the body, um, and that stood up as the gold standard uh, for centuries until about in the second century, 80, uh, a guy named Claudius uh, Galamus started cutting people open and really exploring them. He was kind of the one who, who started really looking at bodies as an exploratory doctor and seeing how they work and how they put together. And so from the four humors, we go to actually seeing how the body works and understanding it and starting to label it. And then fast forward to the 15th century. um, And it was in the 15th century where a guy figured out that we had a spinal cord inside of our spinal column, that there was this cord that went from the brain all the way down and had all these uh, things coming off of it. That's my medical terminology for it. And then in the 19th century, that revolution continued when they realized that the body was just a mass of single cells working together um, to create this unit. And the interesting thing is if you look at the history of physiology or the history of how we study the body, each time there's this revolutionary discovery, there's huge advancements in medical technology and medical breakthroughs. And uh, really, you see as the body is understood better at each of these benchmarks, there is greater human flourishing. People were able to do more things. And, and today we know that there are 100 or 640 muscles in the body, six of which we now know are in your hamstrings, only five of which reside in Logan's body, though, because um, he's weird. Uh, and so there, there's, there's these, these muscles and tendons and nerves that all interact and interplay with each other. Um, and as we look at these and as we study them really in detail, And we we experiment, and we observe, and we interpret the, the results. We're creating better athletes. We're curing more diseases. We're recovering faster from injuries. We're living longer lives. The basic thing is, is when we know how the body works with more clarity, we do more things. Our bodies can do more things. And that's why Paul uses body a lot as an analogy in his writings. He uses it a lot to refer to us as individual Christians, But he also uses body when he refers to the church. And that's because Paul knows that in order to function well, we need to have a clear understanding of how we're put together. To really know who you are and how you operate, you need to study yourself rightly. And when you understand yourself and when you understand your, your situation, when you understand what you're made of, then you begin to function rightly. And that's why this series in the book of Romans is called Learning to Live. Um, Romans is, a lot of people just call it this theology book, and it's rich with theology, but Paul wrote this book not so that we would know things, but so that we would do things. There are classes, um, if you're a pre-med student or if you're in uh, medicine, called uh, Applied Medicine. Well, Romans is applied theology. It's theology for the sake of changing how we move, how we act, how we talk, and how we live. And just last week, we saw this, where Paul had this turning point in the book of Romans, where he, for 11 chapters, outlined the gospel. He turns to the practical side of it in Romans 12, verse 1, where he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so Paul's call to you as an individual Christian is to present your body. The the physicality of who you are, present it to God. And now Paul is going to begin, this week, next week, um, he's going to start telling us, what does that mean to present your body? If God is telling you, as your spiritual act of worship, to present your body to him, what does that look like? What does that mean? And today Paul is going to begin to unpack that for us. And what we're going to see today is that Christian living is tied to a gospel understanding of your own body and a gospel understanding of Christ's body. So, Christian living to do what Paul is calling us to do, to live in light of the gospel, right? We talked last week about that therefore word. Because of the gospel, we live differently. Because of the gospel, we obey distinctly. We need to understand our own bodies in light of the gospel, and we need to understand Christ's body in light of the gospel. So, I want to pray that as we look at Romans 12, 3 through 8 today, um, that God is kind in letting us see those differences. So, Lord, we thank you um, that you are good and you are kind. Um, Lord, even just, I I, I pray with my three-year-old son when he goes to bed, that he would know that you are good, you are kind, and you are loving. And the simplicity of those terms can be understood by a three-year-old, but as we're here on a, on a university campus and we're studying um, academic fields and we're looking at careers and we're learning and we're growing and we're judging, Lord, at the root of it, we need to know with greater clarity that you are good, that you are kind, and that you are loving. And Lord, when we understand those rightly, it changes how we act. It changes how we live. And it changes how we view ourselves. So we pray that happens today because of your word in the book of Romans. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, um, let's start tonight by reading our first verse, which is Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, so Paul's appealing to his um, apostolic office. God's commissioned him to teach the gospel. He says this, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul is lobbying here for Christian introspection. This moment where you you stop and you pause and you consider yourself. You look inside yourself. Um, And this is our first point tonight. In order to know who we are, to understand our own bodies, uh, we need to know how Christians should view ourselves. And this is really a popular question in any area of study, in any language, in any culture. How do you view yourself? How do you think of yourself? Everyone wants to know that, right? Um, We want to know, we, we always ask questions, well, how does that make you feel? How does that change the way you think? Who do you think you are? You know, you can be all that you think you are. You can do all you think that you do. And we have these positive slogans where it's like, the best thing you are is who you think you are. And we ask questions Well, well, when people are down in the dumps, we use this positive, we we see the quotes on Facebook that your grandma's probably post where it's like, deep down, you just need to have a better view of yourself. Um, You have a better view of others. If you just forget all the stereotypes of other people and you just give them the benefit of the doubt, we're all good people down at our core. As long as you think you're good, you're good. Don't let the haters hate, right? And and Paul here, this is an important question. We should be concerned about how we view ourselves. We should be concerned about how we think about ourselves. We should be concerned with how we think about others. And here's Paul, in light of all of the trash quotes on Facebook, (laughs) Paul here is saying, according to the gospel, this is how you should think about yourself. So before we even get into that, how do you think about yourself? If someone asks you the question, what do you think about yourself? What's your answer? What's your rule of measure? What do you compare yourself to? And the first thing he says, why we should look at ourselves, is he says, don't think too highly of yourself. Man, this is a common problem to everybody who's ever lived in the flesh, is to think too highly um, of himself. And he knows specifically, Paul is Remember, John talked about this when he looked at 1 John and he he recited the whole book. He said, uh, when people got this letter, they didn't read five verses and then take a break and come back next week. They read it like in succession. They read it as this giant unit. And so we need to remember why Paul is saying this and where he's saying it, because it's really intentional. Because look at what he said last week. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is good, or what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul knows, for for those of you who were even in here last week and we read this, the, the, the default setting for someone who considers himself a Christian, when we read that verse, it's like, check. Right? I'm doing that already. I'm not being conformed to the rule, I'm being transformed to the rule mind. I know what God wants me to do, I know what's good, I'm offering my body as a sacrifice, I'm living for God, like we all check that off mentally, even though it's kind of audacious to say I do that well, we all look at that and no one's like, man, I'm really bad at that. If you consider yourself a Christian, you have this tendency to look at that text and be like, well, naturally I'm worshiping God. Sure, there are some areas I could get better at, but on the whole, I'm really good at being a Christian. And that's because we see the commands of Scripture and we assume that we're already doing what the Bible wants us to do. And we don't put much thought into how we're doing in what the Bible tells us to do. And oftentimes that's because we don't realize that obedience does take effort. Salvation is not effort-based, but it does take effort to live a Christian life. Christian living is not equal to Christian tweeting. You can tweet and you could post as many good things, and you should. I encourage you to use that. I do that. You should do that. We live in an age where the internet takes the gospel further than it's ever been before. You should use that. Okay? But living a Christian life is harder than writing a Christian life because it takes effort, it takes introspection, it takes really assessing yourself. And Paul here says that the tendency is to think too highly, and it doesn't take someone who's speaking as the word of God for us to know that. We all struggle with that. Even people with low self-esteem, even when you are at your lowest moment, you're putting unbearable parameters on what you think you could do because you're thinking too highly of yourself. And there are two problems that come with thinking too highly. The first is, is that it makes everything about you. Every situation you're in, you're, you're weighing either visibly with some people or internally with other people, what does this have to do with me? How does this benefit me? How does this affect me? What does it say about me? And we all do this. Now, when I say that, it sounds like all of us are just self-obsessed egomaniacs. And in a way, we are. But we're not, like, we're genuinely nice people. There are genuinely nice people in here. No one in here I see as Donald Trump, okay? No one in here is making bold, starting everything with, if you start every sentence with, I am a great, whatever it is, I am a great noun of some sort. You probably think too highly of you. And you guys aren't doing that. We have normal conversations. But, how many of you guys have asked your partner in a lab or your roommate or your friend in the same class, Hey man, what would you get on that test? What are you really asking? Did I do better than you? Right? You're not asking that just because you're really, really concerned about, man, I just so want you, my partner sitting in this lecture that I don't understand, who we've studied with, I just genuinely want you to get a good grade on this test, even if I fail. It's like, no, I, I want to know that if, if I sucked, you sucked. And if you sucked, maybe I did better than you. We're not going to flaunt it over him, but we like that. We ask that question of ourselves. So the first problem is that it subtly makes things about us. The second problem is this unrealistic If you think too highly of yourself, you're thinking too highly of yourself. By definition, you're not thinking about yourself accurately. Your view, your perception, your desires, they're not based in reality. You're not capable of living up to what, or you're not capable to do what you think you're capable of doing. My son is in the stage where he always says, when I'm big like the Hulk, can I smash that tree? And I'm like, sure (laughs) if you want to if you get big like the Hulk you probably can smash that tree Um, but he's not it's unrealistic and so often we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to a lot of that comes from taking our goals and our aspirations from culture rather than from scripture a lot of us put unrealistic expectations for satisfaction if I do this I'll be satisfied that's thinking too highly of that's saying that you know how to satisfy yourself more than anyone else does and Paul says here Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Another translation is don't think of yourself more highly than is necessary. So the question is, when you think about your self-worth, the question you should ask yourself is not how do I view myself. You should do that. But the more important question is how should I view myself? Because the Bible is saying you shouldn't be neutral on yourself. You shouldn't take time to think about yourself. It says you should do it. But the question there is, what am I comparing myself to? When I gauge who I am and how I'm doing and what I'm doing, what am I comparing it to? What am I thinking of? And remember, in this letter, Paul has already defined the basis of our identity. Paul has already given us the way, the bar in which we measure ourselves, the rule through which we can gauge who we are and what we're doing. If you look back in Romans 8... in order that we may also be glorified with him. So when, when, when someone says to you, how do you think about yourself? If you're a Christian, Paul is saying the first thing that shapes you, the first bar you look at, the first grounds of assessment, is you're a child of God. You are a child of God. Now this title is both empowering and it's humbling. To think of yourself as a child of God. It's empowering because there's no greater title than being a child of God. Cosmic, infinite, creator, redeemer, holy, perfect, set apart, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere. You're a child of Him. Student, athlete, governor, general, president. None of these are as valuable or prestigious as being a son or daughter of God. And what that means is that your glory grab is over. You can't grab a better title. You can't strain for a position in this world of greater satisfaction, of greater fame, of greater treasure, because you already have the title which can be treasured the most. Because if you're God... The only thing better than the Son is God. And if you're God, that's a bummer. If I'm God, you guys are screwed. (laughs) I get angry, I get irritated, and I'm not gracious. So literally, the highest position you can hold, not only in this world, but in all of eternity past and eternity future, is a child of God. And that is what Christ has made you. And not a child of God because God was looking around and he saw poor souls and he's like, ah, you could come, I'll lower my standards. You're a child of God because when Christ died on the cross, the son of God, the real son of God, the flesh of God died on a cross and we got his righteousness. Which means when we view ourselves as a child of God, it's not child of God by proxy. It's child of God by the wonderful, the biblical term, imputation. God gave us the righteousness of Jesus. We don't stand trying to be something we're not. We stand clothed in the righteousness of the Son Himself. We are adopted, but we're better than adopted. We are clothed in the mere image of God Himself. That's how you should view yourself. But it's also humbling, because we did nothing to deserve it. Your greatest claim in life, the peak of your identity, is not because you merited it, deserved it, or earned it, but it's something that God gave you in Jesus. And that's humbling. You live in this tension between um, the high status that Christ gives us before God but the lowness of heart we understand when we realize the gospel is a gift. And that's so what David, the psalmist, says um, in Psalm 8 when he says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Man, we should be humbled that we have salvation in Jesus. And that's good. Now this means if that's the basis of our identity, that means in order to know who you are, the basis of who you are, you need to have a clear picture of the gospel. Paul says in Colossians that your life is now hid with Christ. And if you don't know where Christ is, you don't know where your life is. If you don't know where to find Christ, you don't know how to identify yourself. And that's a problem. People in this world wrestle with changing identities, not because there's so many things to attach your identity to. We wrestle with changing identities and being dissatisfied with who we are because we don't know where to find Christ. But thanks be to God that he's given us a way to find Jesus and to find ourselves and to find the joy of being a son or daughter of God. So how does your life match up with what Jesus has done? How does your hope line up with what Jesus has accomplished? How do your plans, your passions and your skills line up with what Christ has purchased you to do? And this is where Paul uses this word. You shouldn't consider yourself more highly than you want, but think of yourself with a sober judgment. Don't think too highly, but be sober. Be realistic. Be calculated. Be weighed pause and think about yourself. You see, oft- oftentimes the problem isn't that we think about ourselves too much. It's that we think about ourselves too little. <laughs> right? And there's, our generation is growing up where we can, in a day, eliminate all quiet times. You go to class, you go to the gym, you go to the movies, you come home, and you can scroll Twitter until you fall asleep. You're never alone with your thoughts. But Christians, we should be. You should take time to really think about who you are and what you're doing. Four times in this one verse, Paul uses a verb form of think in Greek. Think about yourself. Think about yourself. Think about yourself. Think about yourself. You should. You should think about how you're fulfilling what Christ has purchased you. You should dwell deeply on what it truly means to be the child of God who was once dead, who is now made alive who was once an enemy, who was now made a friend, who was once blind, but now he sees. And Paul is hammering this into us because he knows that just like bodies, when you discover how bodies move, they're able to do more. He knows that just as you learn how to understand the gospel in your life, you're able to do things distinctly. And this is where Paul uses that body analogy. Romans 12, 4 through 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So Paul transitions from he talks about the individual. He says you're you have 640 muscles, 649 if you're Logan Laird. Um, you have these muscles, and they all do different things, but you're one body. No one looks at, well, your finger's a body, your thumb's a body, your shin is a body, and your five bodies put together in one body. He says, no, you're one body. Different parts, one body. And then he transitions this to the body of Christ. And see, Paul forces us to look hard at ourselves because he knows when you understand yourself rightly, it allows you to understand how you fit into the bigger scheme of God's people rightly. To contribute well you need to know who you are and then you need to know where you belong and this is our second point tonight how christians view themselves in relationships in relationship to other christians and as a kid um, i was never allowed to watch mighty morphin power rangers Uh, and so i i I desired it with my whole heart there's a story of me calling my mother Elvira, Princess of Darkness, because she wouldn't let me watch it. And my dad still swears to this point that if he didn't walk through the door that time, I'd be dead. Um, But it was all because I couldn't watch Power Rangers. So what I would do in my conniving youth uh, was go over to my cousin's house and watch it. Uh, And I loved it because because what what was captivating of it then is still, for me, captivating now about Power Rangers. I haven't watched Power Rangers in decades, um, but... There's this cool thing because there's really three levels of interaction going on, right? They, they press their little wristwatch thing and they get like spandex-clad ninja power suits, right? And so they'll do their ninja power suits that spark when you hit them, right? Because they're like filled with magnesium or something. Um, and then if, if, they, if, if the enemies get too big, they go into their machines called Zords. Well, the, the, the first is the Zord. And so they go into their Zords, which are like their animals in the original, and then they get weird. They're like space rangers and stuff like that. Why is Brazil the only one who knows Power Rangers? Come on, America! <laughs> um, and so, so they get these Zords, but then if the enemy is bigger than the Zord... Then the individual Zords come together, they join up, and they mighty morph and power morph into a Megazord. And nothing's bigger or more powerful than the Megazord. My dear brothers and sisters, <laughs> consider the Power Rangers. <laughs> but seriously, God has given each and every one of you, and we'll look at this in a second, God has equipped each individual not only with salvation, but a salvation which produces gifts. But it was never meant that you would use those gifts or live in those gifts in isolation from the rest of the body. It's seasonally, yes. On a daily basis, sometimes. But God knows that if you are to live separate from the rest of the body, you'll be overcome. You see, that's because the fullness of who you are To truly find yourself is to look first at what Christ has done in you. That's what Paul just appealed to. But then also look to see where you fit in the body of Christ. You have to have both of those to truly know who you are. And that makes sense because in Ephesians 3, Paul says God gets glory in Christ and in the church. And if God gets glory in Christ and in the church, you can surely find yourself in Christ and in the church. We are individually responsible. That's what we said. saw, Romans 1, present your bodies. You are individually responsible to present your body, your physical self, your aspirations, to the Lord as an act of worship. That means you need to view yourself rightly, what Paul just talked about, in light of the gospel. You need to understand that the gospel has changed you. It's changed your duty. It's changed your loyalty. It's changed your goal. You are now what Paul calls an ambassador for Christ, an evangelist, a servant, a minister of the gospel. But we must understand that it's not just our body which is presented to God. It's not just our body. It's not just this body which will one day be raised again on the last day as a physical body that will have to answer before God, but there's another body. And here in Romans 12, Paul is using this analogy of body to refer to the church, this body of believers. Paul uses this all throughout his books, but especially in Ephesians. In Ephesians, we see Paul um, says that all of us are like the body growing together into the head, which is Christ. But then Paul says this, and this is really interesting. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Just one practical thing there. Um, We talked about not being able to know yourself without knowing the gospel. Um, This is relevant for both ladies and men in here. Husbands, you will not be able to love your your wife to the fullest love unless you know what Christ did to purchase you. And ladies, you will not be loved fully unless your husband knows what Christ did to purchase him. Okay, all love outside of the gospel is a lesser love. So only when we know that gospel with great clarity can we love each other to the fullness of the word that God himself has made. And a sidebar, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, now listen here, so that he might present the church to himself, in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish you see that dual presentation there you are responsible for presenting your body to god in light of your salvation and it's not this obligation that is a burden but it's a joyful response of worshiping the god who saved you from sin but jesus is also responsible for presenting a body and Jesus, the body which Jesus is presenting is the church. It's his bride. It's his helpmate. And what the church does is it helps Jesus do things. It helps Jesus glorify God. It helps Jesus uh, accomplish the plan for redemption. And we find the origins for this all the way back in the Garden of Eve, the Garden of Eve, Um, Well, she probably did some stuff in it. Uh, The Garden of Eden, um, where, where here you have God who created Adam, and he looked at Adam, and he said, it's not good that this Adam, this man, should be alone. And so it says, and God made him a what? A helper. And he made Eve his bride. And Paul later on in Ephesians, right after the verses we just read, he says, this mystery is profound, and I tell you it refers to Christ and the church, speaking of marriage. So all the way back in Genesis 2, we see man and wife. We see Jesus and the church. And even in Romans, Romans 4, um, I believe, Paul calls uh, Jesus the greater Adam, the true Adam. And where God gave Adam Eve as a helpmate, God has given the true Adam, the new Adam, the church as his helpmate, to do things, to not be static, to not sit on a shelf, to not simply exist, but to be dynamic in what it does. You are not meant to live outside of Christ or outside of his church. In fact, you can't. Disembodied bodies are no good to anyone. Disembodied bodies can't do anything, and they're not a body. And so I just want to say, for, for in college, this is a time where we're doing a lot of things. Don't neglect the body of Christ. Don't neglect what the author of Hebrews says. Do not neglect meeting each other because you need each other. And what I love, this is, I, I was looking at this passage this week uh, to preach it. And I think the best verse on the theology of the body of Christ in the whole Bible for me is Romans 12:5, where it says this. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You see, the chiefness of Christ, because of Christ, we're one, but individually members. You see, the beauty of Jesus and what he's done is it doesn't crush the individual for the sake of corporate belonging. You are both fully individual. Christ died for you. Christ didn't die for a nameless church. He died for his church. Christ died for you specifically, but he died so that you might be made members of one another. And this is our relief from the burden of thinking too highly of ourselves. Because if we have to do everything we're called to do in isolation from everyone else, you better be awesome at everything. You better not have any weaknesses. You better be able to be a self-contained unit of efficiency and productivity But you see, when we understand that God has bought us into salvation and given us over to the church, it means that he's created different people and different parts for the benefit of Jesus, the body, and the part. Doesn't that lift a burden from you? You don't have to be awesome. At everything. You don't have to be perfect in becoming like Christ. Should you try to do that? Yes. Should that be your goal? Yes. But where your weaknesses end, it's likely someone else's strengths that begin. And this is God's divine plan. Look back at Romans 12, verse 3. Pay attention to the latter part. For by grace given to me, I say that everyone among you not, uh, ought not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober, sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See what he's saying there? He's saying that God has, it's not by random chance there are different people who are better at different things and different people um, who do different things. It's because God has assigned that to be. That means you don't assess yourself. You don't assess your worth. You don't assess your value. You don't assess your ability based off of other people. You don't say, man, if I could only do what Austin does, if I could only be like this person, if I could only have the clarity of this person, if I could only speak like this person, if I could only not be awkward, <laughs> that would make everything great for me. But that's not what God has purchased us for. We're not to compare ourselves to other people's gifts, we're to assess ourselves based off of what Christ has done in our life, and more specifically what Christ has individually made you to be. So a great way for you, this is something that's been really practical for me, and in five years, four years of doing GCF, it's been really helpful, I think, um, with people I've met with, is how do you know what God has gifted you with? I'm, when I was in seminary, you have to take all these spiritual gifting tests, and I don't remember any of them. And they're so weird, like you have a spiritual gift of hospitality and of cooking. And I'm like, I don't, how is that a spiritual gift, okay? Um, I don't understand what that means or what, how that's really relevant to my life. But here's what I found. What are you passionate about? And what are you skillful in? And typically where your passion and your skill intersects, That's generally where God has given you this measure of faith. That's what God has equipped you for. And it's fluid. It'll change over time. That's generally what you're doing. And so the question Paul's asking is at that intersection, how is it serving the church? How is it helping the body? How is it serving others? How is it glorifying Christ? Because that's where our gifts are meant to be used. And so just, just one thing here, we are, we're We're Grizzly Christian Fellowship, we're an ASUM student group, but we're also part of Sovereign Hope Church. And part of the reason why we want to be part of a church is because this generation specifically, and you can go read reports on it, we, because of social media, because of how we use our phones, because of apps and the internet and all that stuff, we own, we're, we're the first generation learning to interact with people primarily on a digital front, But the side effect of that is we only interact with people we choose to interact with. You see, when you walk into Walmart, you're forced to interact with people you might not want to interact with. But you can control if they're your friend on Facebook. And when we're part of a church, it's part of coming outside of just a college-age community and forcing you to interact with people from different stages of life, because that's the body of Christ. And that's what you need to learn to work with. And so many times I've seen college students and I've talked with other college ministries where you come here for four years, you meet only with college students and then you go out on your own. You may move to a new city so you already don't know what's going on and you walk into a church and you see people who don't look like you, they don't dress like you, they don't talk like you and you're like, this isn't for me. I'm out of here. They're too clicky. It's like, no, you just didn't take the effort because you don't know what it means to belong in a community. That's why we love the church. And here's the thing, because we live on this side of heaven, even in the church, we're going to run into brokenness. We're going to run into conflict. You're going to run into disagreements. You're going to run into people who are mean. You might be the person who's mean. You're going to run into people who are annoying. You're going to run into people who think, act, talk, live, dress, and think differently than you. That's why Paul is saying before he ever talks about the body of Christ, don't think too highly of yourself. Humble yourself. For Christ, as Paul says in Philippians 2, Christ set aside his own comfort of divinity. Well, he kept divinity, but he, he set aside the, the inner workings of the Trinity, peace with God, no cross, no death, no crown of thorns, no whips, no spitting, no jeering, no crowds wanting to murder him. And he set that aside to come to this earth to serve other people for the sake of the church. So to you, as you do church for the rest of your life, and especially in this stage, don't be disheartened by the burden of community, because it'll be hard. But seek to ask Christ did, submit yourself to live in this world for the good of others and for the joy of the Father. Because sometimes we have to put aside personal preference and overlook small sins, for the sake of loving the church, because there will come a day where you'll need that same church to love you. And that's the body of Christ. So, we must have a good understanding of who we are in the gospel, a good understanding of what the body of Christ does for us and how we interact with that. But more importantly, that interaction is key. And that's our final point tonight. Um, Our final point is how the two bodies interact with the world. Here you are, you're Christian. Here you are belonging to a Christian body. What does that mean? Romans 12, six through eight, says this. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving in, uh, to the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul lists here seven gifts. And this isn't a comprehensive list. There are other lists given in the New Testament that include different things that leave off some of these. And so it's not that these are the only gifts that God gives the church, but the point is these are gifts that God gives the church. Which means if you see any of those things that you do or that you have seen in your life, that's not a Christian randomly deciding to be generous. That's Christ serving you through his church. That's the power of the cross at work in your life. You want to see practical applications of the gospel? Where have you been served by someone? Where have you been exhorted, called out by another believer and says, come and let's talk about what's going on in your life. Where have you been blessed? Where have you been shown mercy? Because there you have been shown Jesus. These are intentional gifts to what God has done in his gospel. And we also see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 6 through 7. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Or excuse me, starting verse 6. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And here's the beautiful thing about the church. And this is where that individually members of one another is important because there's... uh, Almost every week so far, I refer to political things, but it's just so prevalent right now. There are thousands of people showing up for rallies of the really five remaining candidates um, from each side, and they show up. And they find identity in that. They are a Sanders supporter, a Rubio supporter, a Trump supporter. That's who they are. It's dictating what they wear, what they put on social media. It's dictating where they spend their money. But here's the thing. If you switch from Trump to Rubio, or from Bernie Sanders to Hillary Clinton, and you're sitting at one chair and you're holding one sign, next week, what's going to happen to that empty chair? It's going to be filled. And someone else is going to be holding that sign. And as much as you place your identity in that, you're replaceable. You're expendable. You're not unique. But this is where what we just read and what Paul has already shown us in Romans is important because Paul has shown us he's lifted up the hood of God's machine of salvation and in it we see that there are only unique people in the body of Christ. That's because in Romans 9 we see that it's God who takes charge of salvation. We see that it's not that you accidentally found God but that God found you. That we didn't choose God but that God chose us and we responded to his mercy on the cross. That means that if salvation is by the will of God, If salvation is by God's will, and if God's gifting is your life, is by God's will in salvation. We saw 1 Corinthians 12, God gives gifts to everyone who has the Spirit. That's all believers. God has given them gifts. That means that everything you do as a believer, everything you've been given as part of the church, was God's plan of specific individual mercy in your life from before the foundations of the world you see in the gospel you find individual uh identity which is long-suffering and enduring and not able to be tarnished but you also find how it interacts with a group to find a more robust more interactive identity in your life that means that there's no junk drawer giftings god doesn't find someone and it's the bottom of the halloween barrel and all the other kids took the good stuff it's like all right you get you get acts of serving behind the scenes No, that acts of service, that acts of mercy that Paul talks about, which might not be as flashy as some of the other ones, and we might be overzealous in desiring some of the other ones. God says, this is for you, by the blood of the cross, before the foundations of the world, for your good, for the health of the church, and the glory of my name. If that doesn't motivate you to desire to use the gifts of grace that God has given you, I don't know what will. You see, I love it because the gifts of grace, the salvation that we receive, it's the anti-ring. You see, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, whoever holds this ring becomes obsessed with it and they become obsessed with it in a way where it, it transforms them into this deeply selfish ball of selfish desire. But when we receive the gospel, we become consumed by it for the corporate good. It drives our goals and our identities. It focuses us for the first time on the glory of God and the good of others because you have for the first time a right view of self because you see Jesus with greater clarity. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, looking at this list, there's seven things he says here. He says um, prophecy, speaking of the things of the faith, service, teaching, exhorting. That that's discipleship. It's call, the, the word literally means to call one to your side. Um, exhorting, uh, generosity, leadership, and acts of mercy. I want to get really practical with you because that's what Paul's doing here. Paul's saying these are gifts that will be used on the world at large, but specifically gifts in the body of Christ. So I want to ask you, looking at those seven things in your Bible, where have you done one of those to somebody else in this room this week? Where have you done one of those things to somebody else uh, who's a believer this week? When's the last time you've used those gifts for the good of the body and the glory of Christ? And here's the thing. We could all grade ourselves on that list. And you should. That's what introspection takes. That's what Paul's lobbying for. And there are three ways we can respond to our grade we give ourselves on that list. Not everyone's gifted in in all seven areas, but God has gifted people. God's gifted everyone in some way. So here, the first thing you could see is you could see something on that list and you could respond in strength. I'm doing that really well I'm really good at that and if that's you and I hope it's you I hope we have people who are strong in their gifts but I want to caution you as Paul is here to gauge yourself with humility and this is one thing that's been really important for me is don't mistake your gifting for strength your gifting was given to you by God and you could passively choose to be strong in one area because God has made you strong there and not seek to develop it at all through your own effort. So if you're strong in one of these areas, seek by God's grace to get stronger. Put an effort to serve more. Put an effort to show more compassion, more mercy, to know more, to draw more people to yourself. And if you do one of these well, by God's grace, tomorrow I hope you do it better. The second thing is you could look at the list and you could say, ah, that, that, that's an area I definitely see where I, I'm prone to do that, but I'm weak in it. And more realistically, that's where most of us find ourselves on this list. We've shown progress, we've shown signs, we show desire, but we're kind of weak at it. And if that's you, I want you to turn back to Romans um, 12, verse 3, and turn back to that Christian introspection. Because it's only by seeing what Christ has done in your life that you can change. God has given you a gift according to the specific measure and grace in your salvation. And that gift was meant to glorify God, to serve others, and to keep yourself busy. That's one way we could tell if we're using our gifts. Are you bored all the time and not doing anything? You're probably not doing things right. So ask God for help for discerning where you're passionate. Ask people around you, like, hey, where do you, where, where do you see things in my life that excite me? And what do you think I'm good at? And realize, how can I use that to serve the church? How can I use that to preach the gospel? How can I use to strengthen my brothers and sisters in Christ? And it's really common to look at that list and and have something you're just underdeveloped in. That's okay. It takes effort to do this. But God, when, when God gives us things that need effort, he also gives us things which fuel our effort. He's given us the gospel, which pushes us further. And lastly... If you look at this list and you say, I don't see any of those things in my heart. I just met with a guy in my community group this week. um, And he said, I don't see any of those things in my life. And I said, again, we need to start where Paul started. Look soberly at yourself in light of the gospel. And realize that if you truly are saved, God does give gifts. And by his grace, they will grow in you but look at how they will grow. We saw this last week, Romans 12, 2. How do we discern God's gifts? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. See what Paul says, in order to discern, in order to know, in order to see, you need to worship. God needs to change your heart. The service of Jesus must start with the worship of Jesus. If you're not worshiping Jesus, if he's not worthy of glory and honor and praise in your life, it's going to be hard for you to discern how you use your passion to serve or do anything. But together, as we learn more about the gospel, we'll increase our knowledge of Christian physiology. We'll know how we work better as individuals, and that'll make the whole body work better. That means that GCF, and whatever church you go to, it will function with greater passion and praise to Jesus because it has a better understanding of who it is. So I tell you to know the gospel, serve the church, and be the body. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we need grace. And we need help. Lord, I ask that you show us where we're weak. I ask that you encourage us where we're strong. And Lord, I pray that... Uh, that those of us in here who are yours, that we will have clarity on what you've done with us and that will force us to do things both as individuals but also as this corporate body of Christ. And Lord, the stronger and more passionate an individual comes when he has a right understanding of where he belongs with the group of Christ, the more glorious the presentation of the gospel will be to those who are perishing. So Lord, I pray you make us people who better prophesy and speak the words of God with clarity. I pray you make us um, better teachers of the gospel. I pray that you give us gifts of exhortation that we may call others to our side to teach them with gentleness and kindness the truth of Jesus. I pray that you give us clarity in how we should serve and how we should be generous and how we can give acts of mercy. I pray that you create in this room leaders who lead with zeal and urgency because we know that the days are evil but the gospel is good and eternity matters. And Lord, this does not happen by human um, desire, but it happens by the grace of the cross where you accomplished salvation, you purchased a body and you commissioned its task. So Lord, make us a helpmate tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.